Turn to Revelation chapter 1. We'll look today in detail at the passage that Elizabeth read for us a little bit earlier. So this revelation is one revelation, not multiple revelations, just to be clear. This is one revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Apostle John through his angel. And so the whole book sort of comes like a, as a letter with a report, if you will, on what God has shown to him. And the passage today, the main activity of the verses here in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, is that John receives his commission to write what he will see. And he sees a vision of the risen Christ, who is the one offering this commission to him. So that's what's going on in these verses. Christ commissions John. And John simply is reporting to us uh, what, uh, what he heard and what he saw. The function, I think, of, of this commissioning, the impact that it should have on its readers, is to highlight the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ. And thus, the trustworthiness and seriousness of all that is contained within the revelation, as within the whole book. So this uh, the, the account here of, of the commissioning that John receives from the Lord Jesus should heighten in our minds and in our hearts the importance of what's about to be revealed and, and the obligation that we are under as, the, as citizens in the kingdom of Christ to listen and to obey. As he told us back in chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads and hears and keeps what is written in it. So I think in this commissioning, we see three important truths about the kingdom of Christ. And so here's how we'll organize our time in the text today. Three important truths about Christ's kingdom. And we'll just take them one at a time. The first truth is this. Participation in Jesus's kingdom requires endurance. Participation in Jesus' kingdom requires endurance. You see that in verse 9, as John introduces this commission section. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So, he introduces this commissioning by identifying himself and his connection to its readers, namely brothers and sisters in Christ in these various other congregations and, and places. But we see here something really important that's going to unfold as a theme throughout Revelation. Don't miss the connection between these three realities. He calls himself a brother. Reminding him that he's part of the same family. There's a familial connection between all Christians. And then he calls himself a partner, a fellow partaker in, and then he gives three distinct but connected realities. The tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So he gives these three things that are all connected very closely to one another. Tribulation is the same word, the Greek word behind that, is the same word that Jesus uses in John 16, when he says, 
in this world you will have trouble, tribulation, right? Often the English translations will say trouble, but it's that same Greek word that it's translating. So tribulation has to do with the hardships and the difficulties and the troubles that come into the lives of Christians on account of their Christian testimony. The trouble that we face is what calls for endurance, right? He says he's a partner in the patient endurance that are that is in Jesus. And so we face troubles and tribulations and it takes endurance. That is just perseverance to make it through those troubles. A faithful persevering under threat and pressure from the enemies of Jesus. And it is the kingdom of Jesus and our allegiance to it that invites this trouble into our lives. So when he says that he's a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the endurance that are in Jesus, I think he's pointing us to the one singular reality of our participation in the kingdom of Christ and the difficulties that will bring and the endurance it will require. The partnership of Christians is a sharing in the connected realities of reigning with Christ while overcoming hardships with faithful endurance, all of which are the believer's station because of their union with Christ. We see again that important phrase, in Jesus. We're partners in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the endurance that are, that is all three of those realities, in Jesus. Because we are in Christ, because we've been united to Christ, we share with him and with each other in the realities of the kingdom and the troubles that that will bring and the endurance that it will require. And so from the start here, we are reminded that John is not writing into a void, hoping that somebody somewhere might benefit from whatever it is that he has to say. He's writing to a particular audience. He's writing to Christians who are and will be under pressure and who will be Persecuted and who will be a suffering people. He writes as a sufferer to fellow sufferers. That is the, the posture of John as he approaches uh, reporting on this revelation. He indicates that he himself received this revelation from the Lord and communicates it to Christians abroad as one who has been exiled to the island of Patmos. Patmos is a small island off the Greek coast that where Rome would often send political prisoners. It was a way of kind of dealing with people that were a bother to the empire uh, without them being meddlesome and being in the presence of, of people. We'll just, we don't even want to deal with it. We're just going to ship them off to Patmos, and that's where they would remain. And to our knowledge, John lived the rest of his days on Patmos and probably died there largely alone. This was part of what it meant for John to suffer for the kingdom of Christ. So he's not saying, I've got it all good and I'm writing to people who are struggling. He's saying, listen, I'm suffering for the sake of Christ and for the kingdom in some of the same ways and maybe in some cases even worse ways than you will, right? So he's writing as a sufferer as one who is in need of the endurance that is in Jesus to those who need the same exhortation. 
And I think it's important to note that our partnership here is in Christ and with each other. The partnership in the kingdom is in Christ as we're united to Christ and therefore we are partners in his kingdom, partners with him. And because we are all united to one another as brothers and sisters. Good morning, friends. Come on in. Because we're all united to Christ as brothers and sisters, we are in this with one another as well. And this partnership is both the cause of the tribulation that Christians will surely face in this world, right? The troubles come into our lives because we are united to Christ and his kingdom and the means by which we'll be able to endure them. Because it's not just the tribulation and the kingdom that are in Jesus, it's also the endurance that's in Jesus, right? So the way that we hold up under the pressure that will come into our lives because of our faith in Christ is by nature of our connection to Christ and our relationships to each other. This reminds us a few things. First, it reminds us that the kingdom of Christ is a rival kingdom. The fact that John has been exiled to Patmos for, for proclaiming the kingdom of Christ reminds us that in the eyes of the imperial powers of Rome, the kingdom of Christ, such as it was, um, was not just a nuisance, it was, it was an enemy. It was a rebel kingdom. And so to represent the kingdom of Christ is to confront the kingdoms of this world. To the extent that our lives are united to, in line with, and marked by the kingdom of Christ and its causes, we will be confronting the kingdoms of this world. It's to be expected. And that was the situation that John was facing and that many other Christians in that day were facing. So we are reminded here that the kingdom of Christ is a rival kingdom to the kingdoms of the earth. And we're reminded of the importance, the utter essential necessity of the church of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, we need each other. John needed the partnership and prayers of the Christians to whom he wrote. And they needed his exhortations and reminders of ultimate truth. We no less than they surely need the strength and endurance that come from linking arms with brothers and sisters in Christ, aware of the dangers and troubles that await and drawing confidence and faith from one another as we live for the only kingdom that will last into eternity. Participation in Jesus' kingdom requires endurance. The second reality about the kingdom that we find is that the glory of King Jesus outshines all earthly powers. The glory of King Jesus outshines all earthly powers. You see this in verses 10 through 16. He introduces what he sees and hears by saying this, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches. And then he names these seven Asian cities uh, to which he would be sending, uh, specifically addressing these messages and sending this letter. The way that John frames this commissioning in, in these verses 
is strikingly similar to those that we find in the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, the reference to the Spirit, sort of being carried by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, in the Spirit, is how John says it here, is very reminiscent of things like Ezekiel, who would say, that I was lifted up by the Spirit, and then he showed me, or then he spoke to me. So he, he, this is in line with, and in the same form as Old Testament prophets, the ones who were the mouthpiece of God to his people. Uh, the description of the sort of strange supernatural vision that he has, where he describes to us the, the risen Jesus uh, in these very interesting and vivid ways, that again sounds very similar to these Old Testament prophets who would report on strange visions that they had. And then they would kind of t- talk about their reaction to the vision. After seeing this, I, and it usually had to do with falling down. I fell down or I froze or something like that. And there would need to be some reassurance from the angel or from the sun or whoever is the focus of this vision. It's okay, right? What angels always say in the Bible when they've been seen is what? Don't be afraid, right? It's okay. Because that's the way that people respond to these revelations. So these these allusions to the, the, the way that God spoke to his people through the prophets in the Old Testament, not only heighten the drama of the book, like and make it really interesting, they also prepare us to receive the revelation as a true authoritative word from God. That's what it is. This revelation is a message from God to his people. And John wants us to see that very plainly, even in the way that he explains how the vision was given, how the revelation came to him. And he hears this loud voice like a trumpet. I don't think that means that literally Jesus' voice sounds like a trumpet. It just means it's a loud sort of call to attention, right? The the trumpet has that effect. And he says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And we see immediately the heart of Jesus for his church. And even specifically, maybe for his churches. Like, yes, there's the universal, global, eternal church, and that church is expressed in local gatherings, local bodies. And so we have seven cities named, seven congregations named, the church that is in Ephesus and that is in Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, specifically these seven cities, seven congregations. The heart of Jesus is not just to blow John away with something impressive. It's to communicate the message of the revelation to his churches. Write what you see in a book and give it to the churches. And I think it's significant that this vision takes place on the Lord's day. That is the first day of the week, the day of the week that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And from that time, the tradition of Christians had been and remains to gather for worship on the Lord's day on the day that he had been raised from the dead. That's why we meet on Sundays. Sunday is the Lord's day. It's the day that Christ was raised. And so here is John not able to be with a church with a body of believers because he's in exile, but nevertheless, it's on the Lord's day that the spirit of God visits him in this way and gives him this vision of the risen 
Christ. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And the purpose of this vision is for the churches. It's for the blessing and instruction and encouragement of the churches. Now, let's talk about what he sees. Write what you see in a book. And then he starts to tell us what he sees. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw. And the first thing he sees is seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands. Now, spoiler alert. In verse 20, Jesus himself will identify those seven golden lampstands as the seven churches that he's just mentioned, right? That he's just commissioned John to write to. Send, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then he tells John that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And again, rem- remembering the symbolic uh, importance of numbers and the, the, that seven represents completion We are dealing with actual individual local churches here, but in total, we are looking at God's heart and Jesus' message to the whole church. That is the church in every age and in every culture. And so he sees seven golden lampstands that we know now represent the church, churches and the church. And so we got to understand what is going on with this lampstand thing. The, the lampstands themselves are a reference to the tabernacle in Exodus 25 and 37. Remember, the tabernacle is the big tent of meeting that uh, God had them set up in the day of Moses uh, for the, the worship of God and to represent the presence of God among the people. And the lampstands were an aspect of, of the, the, the temple, the tabernacle, and then later the temple when it was built. And so we have immediately a reference to an understanding of, okay, the place where God dwells with his people, the tabernacle and the temple, um, which places the New Testament church in the position of the Old Testament temple, right? So that's, that's what's going on theologically here with this connection. So that the golden lampstands, which refer to the tabernacle and temple, represent the churches, says Jesus, that shows us the, the, the connection between the continuity and fulfillment of uh, the, the Old Testament temple in the New Testament church, and namely in the person of Christ as he gathers and meets with his people. Uh, it also echoes prophecies from Zechariah chapter 4, which emphasize the presence and power of the Spirit of God. So Zechariah would speak of the lampstand and of the presence of the Spirit, and that it would be You've probably heard this verse before, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord God. That's from Zechariah chapter 4, and it's in this context of the lampstands uh, being mentioned and and seen in a vision of his own. And so we have the lampstands referring to us and calling to our minds the tabernacle and the temple. And we have Jesus making the connection for us down in verse 20 that these represent the churches and ultimately the church, the global church. And all of that is connected to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, right? It's drawing upon the power of the Spirit that this, uh, by which this temple, this church, would uh, have its life and its power. And all of that is consistent with the teaching in the rest of the New Testament, like in Ephesians chapter 2 and in 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, and elsewhere, where the church of Jesus Christ is said to be being built into a temple for God's dwelling by the Spirit. 
And so we see, again, the lampstands here represent local churches, which shows a clear continuity and fulfillment of old covenant shadows in their new covenant realities in Christ. As the Holy Spirit dwelt among the people of Israel in the temple, so he dwells among the seven lampstands. That is the church as the new temple. And so immediately we have this, the importance of the church and uh, as the people of God, the people of Christ in, uh, in mind. So he sees these golden lamp, seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one, uh, one like a son of man. And now the language there is from Daniel chapter 7. We talked a little bit about that uh, vision last week from Daniel chapter 7, where he sees the son of man coming with the clouds and power and glory. And so now we have another echo of that same vision borrowing from Daniel. And so the one like a son of man is clearly representing Jesus Christ. It's clearly the Lord himself. And then we get this physical description of what John sees as the risen Jesus. Now, I think we need to be careful again not to take this terribly literally, not to think to ourselves, oh, well, I've always wondered what the risen Jesus looks like. It must look like this. He's got white glowing hair and a sword mouth and golden bronze feet and things like that. Right? I don't think John is showing us here this is literally the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus. Again, it's a, it's a vivid, uh, graphic, kind of artistic even way to depict something about Jesus Christ. And so let's take a look at each of these things. He's, he's wearing a long robe and a golden sash. This is the garb of, really, it could be either of a king or of a priest either of which is totally appropriate and fitting for Jesus Christ because he is the king and he is a priest. And with the reference to the, the tabernacle and the temple and these lampstands and the presence of God, it also makes sense to see Christ in a priestly role here. Christ is, is representing uh, the people of God to God the Father. So he's wearing the, the robes of a king and of a priest. He has white hair like snow or wool, borrowing again from Daniel chapter 7 and the vision of the Ancient of Days. Interestingly, the Ancient of Days in Daniel's vision seems to be God the Father. And he is said to have snowy white uh, hair uh, like wool. And so we see, I think, a connection here between the Son of Man and God the Father in their uh, deity. Right. So I think he's uh, highlighting in a subtle way uh, the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, he resembles even God the Father in this way. His eyes were like a flame of fire. If you were to look ahead in the book of Revelation, you'd see that same phrase in chapter 19, verse 12, which is a clear depiction of Christ's judgment of the world at his coming. And so I think the eyes like a flame of fire are a reference to Christ's role as judge. And it, it speaks to his perfect vision, right? He can see to the heart and he always sees truly. So he's able to judge righteously. So the flaming fire in his eyes points us to Christ's uh, role as judge and his perfect ability to carry that out. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. When you, when you see metal being refined in a furnace, that imagery uh, in the Bible, it usually refers to purity. So I think this is an image uh, or a reference to the moral purity of Christ. 
in, in Revelation 3.18, that same uh, language is applied to, uh, to the church. He, he references uh, Christ's uh, feet of burnished bronze as he speaks to the church in Thyatira. And then he speaks to that church primarily about purity and immorality. And so, again, this, this is a picture uh, of the, the purity, the, the holiness, the perfection of Jesus Christ. Also, Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, the same idea of the ancient, is said of the Ancient of Days. Borrowing again from Daniel chapter 10, his voice was like the roar of many waters. It's language that's drawn directly from that, uh, from Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 10. So again, it doesn't mean literally he sounds like waters. It means there is, there is power, there is vastness uh, in his voice. And then we see something that he's holding. He holds in his right hand seven stars. The right hand is always a symbol of kingly authority. When a king was spoken of as holding a scepter in his right hand, for example, it always meant he had the authority to rule and the authority to judge. So when he speaks of Jesus holding something in his right hand, we, are, we have in mind here the image of power, the image of authority. So what is it that he's holding in his right hand? Uh, is important, and it's stars. And it's not just stars randomly, it's seven stars, seven stars once again. Jesus identifies kindly uh, the seven stars, down in verse 20, he identifies the seven stars with the angels of the churches. So just as he says the golden lampstands are the seven churches, he says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So right here, I want you to see this. Christ's authority in the heavenly realms is visible as he holds these stars, as even angelic beings serve him and do his bidding. So immediately we see Christ has angels at his disposal. And you can't say that about just anybody, right? I've never been able to tell an angel what to do. But Christ controls the angels, commands the angels, and they do his bidding. I think there's also perhaps a, a, a jab at the Roman imperial powers of the day. This is an interesting little detail. At the time uh, of the writing of Revelation, the, the emperor was, uh, was Domitian in the late first century. And there was a coin, Roman coin, with uh, Domitian on one side of it. And then on the back side, there was an image of his son who had died as a child. And the, the sun is depicted as an infant playing with stars. So there's this young child on the back of the coin and all these stars around him and he's like holding them up. So there's this image of this, of this infant, the son of Domitian, the Roman emperor, holding up the stars, playing with the stars. Now that image, of course, was a pronouncement of the deification of his heir, right? Look, my son, he's no longer here. He's not alive on the earth, but nevertheless, he is in heaven and he rules. He reigns as a god. That was, the, uh, that was what's being depicted there because that was a big part of the kind of life in the Roman Empire and the Roman imperial cult was the sort of godlikeness and deification of the Roman emperors. So perhaps John's original readers would have recognized the image of the one with the stars in his hand. 
and thus recognize Jesus here depicted as the true reigning one over against the Roman imperial cult. Interesting possibility. So he's holding the seven stars in his right hand. He's commanding even the angels. And he has from his mouth a sharp two-edged sword. In that same passage in Revelation 19, where Jesus is returning in judgment, that same phrase is used. The, the, the sword of his mouth comes out again, clearly a reference to his role as judge. It borrows from Isaiah 11.4, where it says he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Clearly not literal, but an image of divine judgment that is pronounced uh, by the Lord. And clearly also a, a picture of the power and truthfulness of his word. The book of Hebrews in chapter 4 talks to us about uh, the word of God being living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we have that imagery in our minds already. And so when we, we, hear, we see a, a two-edged sword coming from the mouth of Jesus. We ought to hear in that a, a, a commendation of the word of God, the purity, the power, the truthfulness and the judging ability of the word of God. And the final thing he tells us about him is that his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Speaking of, the, I think, the blazing radiance of his glory. And we find later in the book of Revelation that the, the in, in the eternal kingdom and the new heavens and new earth, there's no light or lamp because the glory of God is the light of uh, in their midst. And so here we have the blazing radiance shining from the face of Christ. Now, this is obviously an interesting, to use Elizabeth's word, this is an interesting picture of Jesus Christ. It is chock full of Old Testament allusions. I'm sure you're getting the point, as I mentioned all these verses from Daniel and Zechariah and Isaiah and all these other things. That is one thing about the book of Revelation you really cannot cannot appreciate and understand what's going on here without reference to the Old Testament because it refers to the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. Something like 190 uh, Old Testament uh, allusions happen uh, in the book of Revelation. So it draws heavily upon this image, uh, the images uh, and language and themes of the Old Testament. And here, what we see with this Old Testament imagery and this fresh vision of John, of Jesus, uh, is... A vision of an overpowering glory, an all-seeing knowledge, and a burning holy purity that proved absolutely overwhelming to John. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, in light of the Christian partnership in Christ's rival kingdom and the trouble and endurance that it brings into our lives, this depiction of the risen Jesus has an unmistakable implication. There is no earthly glory or power to compare or to compete. Christ is king, as he told us in verse 8, I think, that he is the king of the rulers on earth. It wasn't verse 8. It was verse 5. The ruler of kings on earth. And here we have a very powerful visual representation of the glory and the power and the authority of Jesus Christ in the face of every earthly power 
There is no earthly glory to compare, and there is no earthly power to compete with the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. John is undone by this reality, and so the glory of King Jesus outshines all earthly powers. And the third final reality about the kingdom that we see from this passage I think is so beautiful and important is this. The risen king is among his people. The risen king is among his people. I've already spoken a little bit about the importance of the church as it's highlighted in these verses, but this is maybe the most important point of all. The risen king is among his people. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. And then he offers some designations of himself. Now John is seen here more than he can bear. He's overcome with beauty, with radiance, with power uh, of this vision. And he falls down as though dead. And Jesus's first words to him in response are, don't be afraid. Why not? I think if I saw that vision, I'd be terrified and feel like I had pretty good grounds to be terrified, as John does. So why in the world should I not be afraid, John might be asking Jesus. And so he answers, fear not, I am the first and the last. Now that resembles the words of God the Father when he spoke of himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the the end. And now we have Jesus saying of himself, I am the first and the last. This is a reference to his sovereignty over all human history. He's been there from the beginning, before the beginning. He's here holding it all together now, and he'll be here to the very end. He is sovereign over all history. He's holding it all together. Don't be afraid. I am first and the last. I am holding this all together. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I am the living one. I am self-existing. I am eternally alive. Life is in me, he says. And then he gives this statement. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, I've conquered death. Why should I not be afraid of you in this power and this glory and this radiance? Because I've conquered death. The enemy's fiercest weapon is powerless before the living one. The worst possible thing that the empire can do to you is kill you. I've conquered death. Death's not the end. Fear not those who can destroy the body, but him who can destroy both body and soul in hell, said Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. The one who can kill the body is not to be feared. The one we are to fear is this righteous, reigning king. And when we approach him with humility and repentance, and we rest in what he has accomplished in his life and death and resurrection, we have no need to fear death. Jesus restates the commission here. Write the things that you have seen. And then two phrases here. Those that are and that and those that are to take place after this. I've seen some take that to mean 
those that are is what's going to happen in chapters 2 and 3, where he writes to the churches. And then those that are taking this after this is basically chapters 4 through the rest of the book. And that's all about stuff that's going to happen later. I don't think that's what is meant. I think those that are and those that will happen after this are all wrapped up in this last times era in which Christians live. In which John indeed was living at the, in the early days of at that time. But the, the last days, the last times is the name of the era between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so I think the things that are and the things that will be are kind of blended together in a way. There certainly are future realities that Revelation points us toward having to do with the coming of Christ. But in a deeper way, the realities that we find unfolded throughout Revelation are things that are true of every age and culture. It's looking at the world from the perspective of heaven. And so he wants us, he tells John, write what you see, both the things that are and the things that will be, the things that will come later. And he's speaking here, I think, of, uh, of, of the, the realities, the present realities of the world and the, uh, the way that God in his wisdom and power will bring his kingdom to its consummation. Look at where he saw John. Let me back you up just a minute. In verse 13, or excuse me, where John saw Jesus, right? He said, when he turned to see the voice that was speaking, he said, on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So where did he see Christ? He saw him among the churches. He saw Jesus, the reigning risen Jesus, with the churches. That is so precious and important. Where is Jesus in his risen glory? He's with his churches. He's with his people. And then we have this reference again to the, the seven stars being the, the angels of the seven churches. And so here Christ has commissioned angels heavenly created beings who live and exist to serve God, he's commissioned them to serve and guard his churches. Could it be that each local church has a, an angel, particular angel that's been assigned to it? Or is it that angels generally are out and about serving and protecting and ministering to churches all over the globe? Not sure. We don't have that much of a window into it. But what I think is clear is that Jesus has actually commissioned his angels to bless and benefit and protect and support the church by blessing and protecting and supporting local churches. I think that's an incredible reality. The angels in this way act as Christ's ears and eyes and as his hands and feet in surveying the health and activity of his churches and administering to them with strength and helps of various kinds. To think that we are Strengthened by, ministered to by, Christ's angels is an amazing reality. Friends, never underestimate the significance of the local church. Christians are, are often prone to do this, inclined to do this. Now, I don't get that much benefit from it. I don't think it's that important. I think I can just listen to a great podcast and get all the, everything that I need for my spiritual life. Not according to Jesus Christ. He lives and reigns among his churches. He sends his angels to, to serve and bless and minister to his churches. He is deeply concerned with the welfare and health and strength of his 
churches. What takes place as we gather on the Lord's day for worship. Christ is here. Like we're a lampstand, right? Imprint Community Church is is a lampstand, if you will. A a golden lampstand. And his angels are serving and guarding Receiving uh, Christ receiving the praise we offer him and uttering to us his own words in the scriptures. The kingdom of Christ is here in this place, among this people, in this moment. It's amazing. Friend, you never just go to church. You gather with the citizens of the kingdom of heaven in the presence of Christ and his angels. For heaven's sake, it is wonderful and amazing reality and an important, essential reality that we neglect or diminish to our detriment and to the detriment of Christ's own. So then as Jesus, uh, we come to the the end here, as Jesus begins to reveal, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, Mystery in the New Testament generally refers to something that was previously hidden that has now been revealed. And here, Christ uh, reveals it immediately. Because in the vision that John saw, I, I imagine he wasn't sure what the golden lampstands were and what the stars were. But Christ plainly tells him. In the immediate context, the mysterious image of stars and lampstands is the church, the churches and his angels. But it also connotes the somewhat surprising form of Christ's kingdom as compared to the expectations of Judaism. They were looking for a king to come and reign in earthly power and kick out the Romans and reestablish kingdom, and that's not exactly what Messiah Jesus came to do. Greg Beale says this, this this initial vision has shown Christ standing in complete authority over human history, yet he does so standing amidst the churches which are undergoing all sorts of trials and even apparent defeats. The mystery that Christ reveals here to John is the reality that his rule coexists with the suffering of the churches. This is, in fact, the mystery of the cross, the same mystery by which Christ himself, though the creator of the universe, had to submit to the power of death. The suffering, hardship, persecution, troubles that come into the lives of Christians because of their faith in him, that come to churches because of their witness for Christ, are in no way an indicator that King Jesus has taken a break or that King Jesus has lost his authority and power to rule. It is indeed an aspect of the coming of his kingdom, that it comes not through defeat, it comes not through Uh, fighting and gaining ground and victory and forcing the world under its sway. It comes through suffering. It comes through patient endurance. Indeed, it is by submitting to the power of death that Jesus would bear the sins of his people and set free all those who would trust in him as their savior. Hebrews 2 tells us it was by tasting death for everyone that Christ would destroy the one who has the power of death the devil, and thereby deliver us from the fear of death. There's no resurrection without a cross. And without the cross and the resurrection, we would still be in our sins. But thanks be to God, 
Christ endured the suffering of death and the agony of the cross in our place so that he might become the firstborn of the dead. That is, that he might be raised to life eternal and that we who trust in him might one day join him in the resurrection from the dead and share in his glorious reign in the eternal kingdom. King Jesus be praised. Let's pray.